Blades, then you're through. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. chapter 6, just want to read the first five verses of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now these are the commandments, the statutes, the judgments, which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that you might do them in the land whither you go to possess it. That thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes, his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son, and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and observe to do that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily as the Lord of thy fathers hath promised thee, in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word this evening. We thank you that uh, you gave us your word, that we might receive from you a declaration of your character, that we might understand who you are. We might understand the, the love that you have for us. We might understand the personal work of Jesus Christ. And we might understand uh, what you have for our lives. And we thank you for your word. We pray tonight as we open up the Word of God yet again that you give us wisdom and understanding. Oh God, you'd guide me as I speak, just allow me to have clarity of thought and allow me to uh, speak your Word in truth. Uh, Lord, may we receive from you tonight a blessing. May uh, your Spirit speak to our hearts and may we leave rejoicing, having known that we've been in your presence today. Guide me, Father God, as I speak. And we just pray that you bless this night in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, Puritan writer Thomas Watson wrote this. He said, If there be but one God, then there is but one whom you need chiefly to study to please, and that is God. The principal truth of this statement is that God is one. And since he is one, there is only one we should serve. This fact is referred to as the unity of God. And the unity of God means that there is only one true and living God, one true God. There is no other God beside him. God is one. As they put it in the theology, he is undivided and is indivisible. That is, God does not consist of parts, nor can he be divided into parts. God is not only one, but he's the only one. And that fact stands in contradiction to doctrines like polytheism, which teach that, uh, or believe that in the existence of many gods. But the multiplicity of gods is in itself a contradiction. Because how can there be more than one absolutely perfect, supreme, almighty being? Well, the truth is there can't be. So if there were more than one, then there would not be God. 
So tonight as we continue our study in the character of God, let's give some consideration to the importance of the truth of the unity of God. The truth that there is only one God. Now tonight we're going to look at the statement of God's unity. And then next time that I preach in the evening, we'll look at the significance of God's unity. Well, what does it mean to us? So tonight, let's consider the statement of his unity as found here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one Lord. The statement of his unity. And firstly tonight, we need to understand the context of the statement of his unity in verses 1 through 3. Because the context of these verses in Deuteronomy is critically important if you and I are going to understand about what, who God is and we're going to understand what he's trying to teach Israel here in this chapter. See, after spending 430 years in Egypt, or almost 430 years in Egypt, Israel, the nation of Israel, is on the brink of entering into the promised land, that are about to enter the promised land that God's promised them. Look in verse 1 of chapter 6. Now these things are the commandments and statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you go to possess it. They're about to cross the Jordan. They're about to enter into the promised land for the first time. After wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, they'd left Egypt. They'd sinned against God at Mount Sinai. They'd wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And now finally, they're standing on the banks of the Jordan and they're about to enter over into the promised land. Verse 3 says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee, in the land that floweth with milk and honey. They're about to enter the promised land. You know, during the time, their time in Egypt, the nation of Israel had been exposed to polytheism, to the polytheism of the Egyptian neighbors. You see, the Egyptians believed in many gods, and while they'd been in Egypt for 430 years, that influence had rubbed off on them. And this exposure and familiarity of the Israelites with these gods had profound influence upon their behavior. They had become steeped in a culture of polytheism. And that's seen in the fact that it took only a little while after leaving Egypt and a time when they arrived at Mount Sinai before they were building and worshipping a golden calf. You know the story in Exodus 32. Moses got up the mount to receive the Ten Commandments. And he's been gone for a little time. And while he's been gone, the people cry out that Aaron would uh, provide for them a, a god, an image, an idol for them to worship. So he takes all their golden earrings and he puts them in a, into the furnace and he heats them up and he designs a golden calf for the people to worship. And you know when Moses comes down from the mound, he can hear them uh, playing and singing and rejoicing and acting uh, out of, out of uh, uh, sinful behavior in front, of the, uh, in front of the golden calf instead of doing the will of God. And you know what happened? Moses then got the, the calf, he ground it up, he put it in the water, and he made them drink it. But you see, the problem was the nation of Israel, after 430 years in Egypt, had become so uh, influenced by the behavior of the Egyptians, they were struggling with this matter of polytheism. And they needed constant reminders. 
that their God was the only God they needed, that there was no other God. It reminds us that the Lord our God is one, that he is not Baal, he's not Ashtaroth, but he is the Lord God, and that they are not. And that's the point here in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. There is no other Lord. There is no other God. He's the only God. It's in this cultural and spiritual setting, this cultural and spiritual context, that we have this declaration of verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And now as they enter the promised land, they would again be surrounded by heathen nations. They would again be surrounded in the, in, in the land of Canaan by the religions of the Canaanites. And they need to be reminded as they enter into this new land where their neighbors were going to be worshipping other gods, they need to be reminded about the unity of God, that there is only one God, one and only God. He's the true God, the only God. And then you're reminded of that as they're about to enter the promised land. That's the context of the statement of his unity. But now let's look at the meaning of the statement of his unity. When the Lord says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. As we said, this is a declaration of the unity or the oneness of God. That there is only one God. That there is no other God beside him. Now Moses, of course, is the man who was the author, the human author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And he starts out Genesis with a declaration in Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God. It's interesting that when the Bible starts, there is no justification, no uh, 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 idea that somehow God doesn't exist. There is no explanation of that fact. There is no explanation of who this God is. It just simply says, in the beginning, God. That's a statement of fact. That's the foundation for everything else we know about God. That's the foundation for everything else the Bible teaches us about God. He's the only uncreated being in the entire universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we know what he created. It tells us that the rest of chapter 1. But in the beginning, he's the only uncreated being in the entire universe. And it's just assumed. It's just a statement of fact in Genesis with no explanation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, he is the eternal one. He's always existed from eternity. There's never been a time where God has not existed. There never will be a time where God doesn't exist. He has always existed. He's the eternal one. He is literally the self-existent one. The eternal one. It's to him alone that the name Jehovah rightly belongs because he is the absolute deity. He's the absolute God. And this truth forms one of the major themes of the word of God. The unity of God. As you read throughout the 66 books of the Bible, one of the overriding themes, one of the constant themes of the Bible is the fact that God is one, that God is indivisible, that God is the only God. There is unity of God. 
In fact, more than 50 passages of Scripture clearly and forcefully testify to the unity of God. Now, the reason for this, in the Old Testament especially, was the persistent tendency of the Israelites for idolatry. But you know, there was a New Testament problem too. Particularly for the Gentile believers in the church, they'd come from a polytheistic, come from a, 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 an idolatrous society, they'd become members of uh, the church, they'd been saved, and they need to be reaffirmed for Israelite and for the Gentile, we need to be understand that there is only one God, that God exists as an entity. He alone is God. There's one God, the unity of God. He's on his own. He is unique. God found it necessary to repeat continually over 50 times in the Bible that there is only one true God. And other truths of Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, receive more prominence than the unity of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, the Lord calls upon his people. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The word hear here is uh, literally listen intelligently. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. The Lord says to Israel through Moses, Israelites, listen to what I'm about to say. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. Listen intelligently. This truth is a truth that you must grasp before you go into the promised land, before you are surrounded by the Canaanite people with all of their false gods. You need to listen to this. This is a truth that you need to get and understand. Then he says, the Lord our God is one Lord. The one there speaks of unity. Listen intelligently, Israel, and understand this. There is only one God. That's a fact you must know. A fact we must all understand. There is but one God. Somebody said this is the essential truth about God. Of everything else we know about God, and everything else the Word of God teaches about God, this is the central truth. This is the, one of the most important things that you and I have to grasp, that there is only one God. And this is not to say that the doctrine of the Trinity is unimportant, for it is. Because you and I believe in one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, the Hebrew here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 doesn't contradict that truth of the Trinity. The Hebrew word one here in Hebrews, in Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord our God is one Lord, the Hebrew word one is a compound unity word, not a simple unity. Okay? So, uh, you know, you can have a simple unity. We have that in English. You can talk about, you know, I have one apple. But there's also a compound unity in Hebrew. Now, the English language doesn't express this truth very well. But the Hebrew allows for several persons in this one God. It's a compound unity. Within this Godhead, there can be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and still be one God. One of the best ways to illustrate is in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Go back there with me, would please. Genesis 2. 24. It says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one 
flesh. Okay? These two, husband and wife, shall be one flesh. It's the same Hebrew word for one. It's a compound unity. Two equal one. Okay? Two shall be one flesh. And you find that uh, in other uh, passages of Scripture. Right, talks about uh, a, a, a bunch of grapes, one bunch of grapes. We know there's lots of grapes within a bunch and so on. And so they are allowed, we are, in, even in, Hebrew, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, the Hebrew allows for a trinity within the Godhead. But that Godhead is a unity. We can also see this plurality in the name of God used in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 1 through 3, which is the Hebrew word Elohim. What it says in verse 1, now these are the commandments, the statutes and the judgments of the Lord your God, Elohim, commanded to teach you. We find it also in verse 2, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God, Elohim. Verse 3, hear, O Israel, and observe to do, that you may be well with thee, that may increase mightily as the Lord the God, Elohim, of thy fathers. And the word Elohim is a plural name. El is the singular, Elohim is the plural. It's often used to describe God as the creator. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 it says, The Lord God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And so within the Hebrew, there is no uh, contradiction here. When it talks about Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. There is only one God. This is the unity of God. There is no other God. This is the singular truth we need to understand, that God exists as an individual. He is on his own. He is unique. But within that Godhead, within that unity, there can be plurality. That's the Trinity. Now, we'll consider that further when we get to God's triunity. Okay, remember we're looking at the nature of God. We've seen his spirituality, his personality last time, his unity this time, and then after we look at the significance of his unity next time, the time after that, we'll have a look at his triunity and we'll explore some of the verses that explain the fact that we can have a trinity within this unity. But of course tonight we're studying the unity of God in the light of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. The Lord our God is one Lord. That God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt. As I said, he repeatedly expressed his unity, his oneness. They needed to realize that there was only one God and that there is no other God but our God. He is the only God. It doesn't matter what others' religions might claim is God. They might want us to understand that, you know, Buddha is God or or Allah is God, or whatever the case might be, the reality is that there is only one God. And when we get the significance of this, we'll see why it's important that there is only one God. Only one God. Now in the light of this, let's spend some time now looking at the uniqueness of this statement. Go with me to Ju Isaiah, please. Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44 and verse 6. We read, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, 
and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last. Beside me there is no God. And who as I, uh, sorry, and who as I shall call and shall declare it. And set in order for me since I appointed the ancient people. And the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show unto them. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Here in Isaiah chapter 44 and verses 6 through 8, God once again declares for us his unity, that he alone is God. He says that in verse 6, he says at the end of verse 6, beside me there is no God. The end of verse 8, is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God, I know not any. He declares clearly his unity. There is only one God. And the Lord describes his uniqueness as God by using five of his names to describe his uniqueness in verse 6. He says, first of all, uh, thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel. He is the Lord. The word Lord means the one who interacts with mankind. He's our Lord. He's the King of Israel, the ruler of the nation of Israel, and ultimately the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the Redeemer, he says, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, the one who has made provision for the forgiveness of sins. He's the Lord of hosts says there. He is the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, ruling the hosts of heaven, ruling the hosts of earth, and therefore he is the all-powerful one. He's omnipotent. He's the Lord of hosts. Then he says that he is the first and the last in verse 6. I am the first and I am the last. He is the one who has existed throughout eternity. None comes before God and none comes after God. Now this is an amazing description of God. This is the uniqueness of the character of God. This God who is one God. This God who is unity. This God who is the only God. He is Lord. He is King of Israel. He's Redeemer. He's Lord of Lords. He's the first and last. Before there was anything, including time itself, there was God. You know, one of the great mind twisters of theology is the concept of the eternality of God that God existed outside of time for all of eternity that there's never been any time where God did not exist and yet you can't even describe it that way because eternity is not thought of in time God created time God created the evening and the morning when God divided the firmament and then he divided the lights and he set the great lights in the heavens and he separated the day from the night, God created time. This is the God that we worship. One commentator said he existed before time, he exists at the end of time and at all points in between. God was there before time began. When time ends, at the end of the millennial kingdom, God will still be there. And God has resided over it for all of eternity. 
God is not bound by time. God is not bound by space as we understand it. Is it any wonder he makes this declaration at the end of verse 6? Beside me there is no God. There is no God like this God. There is no God who is the creator of all things. There is no God who exists from eternity to eternity. There is no God who is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. There is no God who is the Redeemer like him. No one is on the same level as our God. He's unique in his unity. And commonly said, all others are only gods by name, not by nature. I mean, nominal, fictitious deities, not real ones. All other gods are not gods. All other gods are just fictions of somebody's imagination. There is only one true God. Then in verse 7, the Lord asks, which of the idols of the Gentiles can do as the king of Israel, the Lord of hosts, has done? He says this, and who, as I, shall call and shall declare it and set in order for me since I appointed the ancient people? He says, who is able to do this? Who else is able to do what I have done? I have appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show unto them. Show me. He says, what, what idols of the Gentiles can do what the king of Israel's done? What can do what the Lord of hosts done? Who can do what I have done? Who can do the miracles I have done? Who create like I have created? Who can deliver Israel like I've delivered Israel? Who can deliver his people out of Egypt like I delivered them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and through the Jordan? Who can do this? Show me a God of the Gentiles who can do this. Show me a God of the Gentiles who's able to answer prayer, who's able to heal the sick, who's able to do what he does. Who, show me a God who can do this. Show me a God of the Gentiles who can, uh, who can defeat uh, Goliath. And show me a God of the Gentiles who can deliver Daniel from the lion's den. Show me a God of the Gentiles who can do what I have done. Show me a God. And there is none. And then in verse 8, he declares his power to deliver Israel. And by way of reassuring the nation of Israel, he declares his power to them. By way of describing his unity, his, his uniqueness as God, he declares his power. And it's seen in the two words translated God in verse 8. It says, For ye are not, neither be afraid, fear not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Now those two words gods, two words for God there, translate God, are different Hebrew words, which is unusual in the Hebrew text. The first word God, where he says, is there a God beside me, is the usual word for God, it's El, it's singular, just is there a God? Is there El like me? Is there a God like me? The second word for God, there is no God, I know not any, is an unusual word. It's the word tsor, T-S-O-O-R, which tells us what God is. It's a descriptive word. The first word tells us who he is. He's El. There is no God like him. 
And this word here describes what he does. Remember what the context of this is. Fear ye not, neither be afraid, have not I told thee from that time, and have declared it. There's no need to be afraid. Why? Because there is a God, and there is no God, be, is no God beside me, or is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not what. And this word to soar means a rock or a place of refuge. You don't need to fear because El, your God, is a place of refuge, is a God of refuge, is a God of safety. He's a God who is your rock. Then the Lord says in verse 8, Tell me, is there any God beside me? To which the Lord supplies the answer, Yea, there is no God, that is, there is no rock, there is no place of safety, there is no place of refuge. And then he says, I know not any. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Now truly, the God that you and I worship is unique. There is no God or rock upon which we can build our salvation. There is no God who is, our, who is a refuge for us, a place of shelter and safety like our God. There is only one true living God. He is the shelter in a time of storm. He is the rock upon which we stand. He is our refuge. He is our safe place. God alone. And the key thought here in Isaiah 44 verse 8 is in the view of our study on the unity of God is this. If God who is omniscient does not know of any other God, then there can be no God, no other God. That's what God says. Is there a God beside me? That's the question. Israel, tell me, can you name another God beside me? Well, yea, there is no God. Because I know of not any. God doesn't know of any other God. God says, the only God that exists is me. There is no God beside me. And if there is, I don't know of it. The omniscient God, the all-knowing God says, I don't know of any other God. And if God doesn't know of any other God, then there is no other God. If the eternal, self-sufficient omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God doesn't know of any other God, then there is no other God. And therefore we need to understand with Israel that our God is the only God. He's the only all-sufficient creator, redeemer, eternal God that there is. There is no one else to worship. There is no one else to serve. There is no one else to bow down before. There is no other God beside the Jehovah of the Old Testament and the God of the Bible. Truly the Lord our God is one Lord, as Deuteronomy 6.4 says. Now just in case we think this is just an Old Testament truth, when we come to the New Testament, the New Testament writers were careful to reaffirm the doctrine of God's unity. Because you see, by the time we get to the New Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity starts to unfold. And remember, as the doctrine of the Trinity starts to unfold in the New Testament, it's been taught 
to Jews and Gentiles. And the Gentiles, of course, have come from a polytheistic background. They are worshippers of idols. So now as the apostles and the preachers of the early church start to teach about the Trinity, that there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the New Testament writers reaffirm the unity of God. In fact, one of the major controversies in the early church was uh, over the Trinity. Was God a unity? Or was God three gods? Are there three gods we worship or one God we worship? Is there God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and there are three separate gods? Or is there one God eternally existing in three persons? So the New Testament writers had to reaffirm for the New Testament believers that there is only one God. While we're teaching the doctrine of the Trinity, it's important we understand the unity of God that that Godhead is singular. We worship one God. He eternally exists in three persons, but he's only one God. Now, of course, the Trinity is a doctrine that we find hard to comprehend because of this very fact. We need to understand the unity of God. There's one God. And the reason for the reaffirmation is because believers must appreciate the fact that the Lord is one not three. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, please. Here is one of the passages where it's reaffirmed for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6. Verse 5 and 6, it says this, For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and with him and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom all things are all things, we by him. But there is but one God. There's one God. We worship one God. Yes, we worship one God eternally existing in three persons, but we worship one God. There's not three gods. We worship one God. Verse 5 says, For though there be that be, are called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there be gods many and lords many. But we need to remember that there is but one God. There are many counterfeit gods. Even today, around the world, even in Australia, there are people who worship counterfeit gods, counterfeit deities. But the reality is there is only one God. That is the creator. It's the God that in the beginning created heaven and earth. It's the God that ruled throughout history. It's the God that we find mentioned throughout the Bible. He's the only God, the only true God. There are no gods beside the true and living God. There are no gods beside this eternal, infinite God. We have no redeemer, no refuge other than God. As Christians, we must come to a renewed understanding of the unity of God. We must continually see God for who and what he is. He's the all-sufficient creator, redeemer. He's the only 
true God. All that we are is because of him. And all that we have is because of him. And therefore it stands to reason that we owe him our all. Over the course of this series, as we continue to explore the character of God, we're going to consider his power, his knowledge, the fact that he's unchanging us. We're going to explore his holiness, his grace, his mercy. We're going to explore his will for our lives. And as we do, we'll come to realize that there is no other God like our God. It's my desire that we gain an appreciation for the character of our God. This God that was so clear in his word that you and I need to understand there is one and true and only God, and that is him, El Elohim. He's the only God. You understand that God didn't create us as robots. He allows you and I to choose to love him and give glory to him. For there is no equal to God. Let's never forget the Lord our God is one Lord. There's nothing and no one like God. And we are all to him. Somebody said this, our eyes are to be focused on one face. All we do is to be geared toward pleasing one God. Our heart, our soul and all our might is to be dedicated to pleasing one God. And that is to be our, desire, that is to be our one desire. Nothing else matters. And I trust as we focus on our God that we will be moved to walk with God, to live for God, and have always have our God in our thoughts and behind all our actions so we'll truly honor God, the one and only God. Let's never forget the Lord our God is one Lord. There is no other. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for this clear declaration that the Lord our God is one Lord, that there is no other God, that within the Godhead there is unity, that you are the one and true and living God, that you deserve our worship, you deserve our praise, you deserve our service because of who you are. There is nobody like you. There is nobody beside you. You are unique. And may, Father, we gain an appreciation of your uniqueness that we might indeed worship you in spirit and in truth to your glory. Blessed we close this night, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.